podcast. It is I, your host, Christian, and we are here to geek out on another specific subject of my guest choice. And this week we are talking about Stephen Sondheim, a legendary Broadway musician, uh, writer. He is responsible for some of your favorite musicals, whether it's Sweeney Todd or Into the Woods, Company, Assassins. Oh, wait, too many, way too many lists. And we'll go into that with this episode. This week's guest is Chachi, and Chachi was terrific. Yet another person I brought on who is much smarter and much more charming than I am, much more easier to listen to, that we all know that's for sure. But she was terrific. That's what this show is for. We're bringing on cool people to have really cool conversations that we might not get to have otherwise. Uh, don't want to waste too much of your time, folks. Remember, InMyDefensePodcast.com is the best place to find us. There's also iTunes and all the other places. Make sure you like, subscribe, give us some five-star rating. Make it easier for other people to find us. If you like what I do, if you like what we do, please, please share with everybody else. That is possibly the best thing that you can actually do for this podcast to make sure that it keeps growing. All right, let's get right into this with Steven Sondheim. All right, so I am here with Chachi Cologne, and we are going to talk about one of her favorite things. We are going to talk about Stephen Sondheim. Say hi to everybody, Chachi. Hi, everyone. All right, so Stephen Sondheim, uh, if anybody's not familiar, is the great composer and lyricist, does a bunch of stuff on Broadway. Why Why are we talking about Stephen Sondheim today? Um, You know, when you kind of talked about, you know, something you want to geek out on, um, It always comes back for me to Stephen Sondheim. Um, I am a lifetime performer, Um, you know, technically been doing it for over 20 years now. I started at a pretty young age and did it consistently. And um, as a performer, I... I've really never come across work that is so complex and so challenging and so, you know, um, I think really says what people are feeling. Um, As artists, I think we're always searching for words and always searching for like, how do I exactly explain or convey or, you know, how am I going to get the person who's, you know, experiencing my art on the other side to feel what I'm feeling or what I want them to feel. And for me, Stephen Sondheim, even at a very young age, um, seemed to put a a word on how I felt, or even if I didn't feel that he put a word on how other people felt in such a way that made me feel how they were feeling. Um, even when I was very young, um, you know, the first time I, I started doing uh, theater in middle school as trying to figure out like what to do. I was a very uh, outgoing, precocious child who had a lot of energy and my parents didn't really know how to deal with it. And so um, I often spent a lot of time in my room pretending I was obsessed with movies and television. Um, and I kind of, you know, that, that 
saying of being raised by a TV is definitely how I feel. I would, you know, perform for my stuffed animals and all of, you know, I would pretend to be on cooking shows, like always a performer. And so when I got to middle school, a lot of my friends were involved in band. I didn't have that skill. I didn't play an instrument and I didn't really want to sit and do that anyway. And I found theater and I was like, oh my God, these people are loud. They're obnoxious. People are seeming to enjoy, you know, my hyperness. I think I found it. And uh, I, so I did middle school theater and whatever that means, you know, it's one of middle schoolers trying to, I don't know, emote. And then I got to high school and I sat in my high school freshman acting one class and my teacher put on uh, this musical Into the Woods and my life changed. Uh, I never, I mean, I grew up watching musicals. My mom was really big into like Sound of Music and My Fair Lady. But uh, there was something different, and I think I recognized it immediately. I don't know that I knew what I was recognizing, but I knew this is something different. So again, kind of a long-winded way of saying um, the conversation for me as an artist, as a person, always seems to come back to Stephen Sondheim. And so, you know, from being 14 and not really knowing what I'm seeing to, you know, twice that time, being 33, um, I'm still challenged. I'm still inspired. I'm still enamored with the work of Stephen Sondheim. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> for me, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with Stephen Sondheim just as much as I'm familiar with uh, musicals in general. I was very much a late blooming theater kid. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until maybe probably my... <laughs> 20s, mid 20s, where I got a full appreciation for like, I never hated musicals, I never looked down on them or anything like that. But it, yeah, it was just another genre of a thing. Um, but as I got older, and I started having a better appreciation for stories and, and characters, and I, like you said, like Stephen Sondheim has a very, he's very good at getting like characters, getting characters wants across and getting getting the getting people's ideas across. So like, even in the very songs themselves, um, I have some cool little factoids about Stephen Sondheim. So the dude was born in March 20th, 1930, which makes him 90. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's getting scary out there. I will tell you as a, as a stand, it's like every year it's like, yay. But then it's like, oh, you know, you know, you can only be going for as long as you can. So it's, but yeah, he's, yeah, he's up there and, now. Yeah, he's basically worshipped on Broadway and Hollywood. Uh, some of his accolades include 17 Grammy nominations with eight wins, 11 Tony nominations with seven wins, uh, the Trustees Award, Lifetime Achievement Award, Pulitzer Prize, five Laurence Olivier Awards, many more. Um, he's got an Oscar for Best Song from Dick Tracy. He yeah. wrote he wrote all the music in Dick Tracy, which is another thing that as a child I experienced but didn't didn't know it was it was Stephen Sondheim. I just, I was obsessed with Madonna. And so Madonna, I don't know if you've seen Dick Tracy, (laughs) but she's like the femme fatale of that. And I was just like, yes, you know, and, but yeah. It's, uh, it's one. It's one of the only saving graces of that movie. That movie's very. Dick Tracy movie's very. <laughs> it's very colorful and cool, but it's also very weird and doesn't make a lot of sense. And it, and it harkens back to some weird uh, tropes from like old pulp comics, which I'm a big fan of. But uh, yeah, the the idea that Stephen Sondheim was able to like uplift it for this one part was really cool. Um, is there? Yeah. Is there Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, is there anything about like uh, Sondheim that kind of like blows your mind, or you think would blow other people's minds about what he's capable of? I mean, I think, I think the thing to to like for me as a as a Sondheim stand, and we will say that because 
that is definitely what I am. I think people would be impressed with just the, the body of his work, the difference. I mean, if you go through his work, especially, um, you know, in the time it was created, um, he was, I think, 22 or 23 when he wrote the lyrics for West Side Story. I mean, he was like literally brand new at this, had almost no experience. Um, you know, um, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, his biggest mentor in his life um, was um Oscar Hammerstein II, which is the famous, uh, you know, Roger Hammerstein, um, you know, Sound of Music, My Fair Lady, Oklahoma, you know, all of these, these tyrant, like these titans in musical theater, which essentially is what created musical theater as we know it today. Um, he was, uh, taken in kind of by them because he comes from a broken home. Um, so he kind of has gone on record to say, I wanted to do anything Oscar did. And so if Oscar was, you know, very famous kind of quote is if Oscar was a geologist, I would have been a geologist, but Oscar wrote songs. So that's what I wanted to do. So it's, it's crazy to me for the genius that's there and that it's just kind of something he stumbled into. Um, musically, he only has taken about like four years of piano, um, like in general, uh, you know, things like that. I think something, another thing is to look at his work that he did in like the seventies, like the 1970s, which is a pretty crazy time in art in general. But if you look at his work, he's done, he did, I believe, like six shows in the 70s, and they're all remarkably different with, you know, um, like the subject matter, with the aesthetics, um, sort of the characters that he sort of explores. It, it is just, there aren't, I think that sometimes you look at an artist's work and you can kind of see the pattern, and I think you can definitely hear the pattern, if that makes sense. Like if you listen to enough Sondheim, you kind of get to understand that, oh, this is a Sondheim song, which I think is important as well for an artist to have a distinct style. But in the projects he chooses to work on, they are very vast and he has taken a lot of um, risk and sometimes it's high risk, high reward. And sometimes it's high risk and like failure, crippling failure to the point, you know, where he wanted to give it up and, you know, all of this kinds of things. So for me, I think the beyond his work speaking for himself, which I think does a lot of the work, what I am always amazed by is how he seems to fall into these projects and yet excel at them as if he was the thing pushing everything. You know, he is really, he's talked a lot about in interviews and in different things I've read. Um, he really talks about how he's, he never had a family. He didn't, he was an only child. His parents got divorced at a young age. There's a lot of stuff with his mom that's pretty upsetting and he talks about how he always wanted a family. And so for him, theater is his family. And he doesn't want to do things by himself. He's a huge collaborator. That's another thing I, I kind of identify with. I'm, I'm huge on collaboration. Um, I think some artists are like, let me do everything, like very much a la Prince. And then there are people that are more like me, where I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I want your idea and this idea because we make each other better. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, what I'm amazed by is his 
body of work, how diverse it is beyond just like the content of the work, which is a lot, you know, as an actor, I'm an actor first, um, you know, um, us in musical theater, there's that idea of a triple threat, you know, being a singer, an actor, and a dancer. And I think every person involved in musical theater has a different like hierarchy, like what they rank first. Some people are singers first, and then some people are dancers. I'm definitely an actor first. And so as an actor, there's no better work than Steven Sondheim's work in musical theater as far as I, I see it. And I, I, you know, I've seen a lot. And for me, it always comes back to dream roles, um, roles that just make me really, really um, inter- interested and, and really challenged in such a beautiful way. It's always Stephen Sondheim. And would you say uh, with, uh, with this somewhat, with the knowledge base that I have about Stephen Hunt Sondheim, his musicals don't sound like other musicals. Like you go into like being able to identify his work over other folks, and you imagine that like it's very it's very character driven. Uh, every everyone every character every major character in the shows always has their own voice and their own and he almost you can almost break it down into like a. A math like I've, I've seen I've seen I've seen the stuff that he does and like whenever people are going to explanations about like the the thought that he puts into his work it's very much uh, t- t- taking taking melodies flipping them over reversing them turning them around trying to get certain ideas across in the way that I don't know if you can do it in any other medium except for music I mean I, I think you know it's funny that earlier you spoke about how you never hated musicals. And as a musical theater person, you know, and that is, I'm a theater person overall, I think, but I think I've adopted saying that because when I talk about loving musicals, people roll their eyes or they scoff or they, they have these ideas of what musicals are. And, and I get very offended and very like, wait, 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 because musical theater is a, is an art form and genres exist within it. So when we talk about musicals, a lot of times people only kind of know the the sort of ones. Yeah. Show tunes or the ones from the golden age of musical theater. Right. Um, I'm also, uh, I'm a theater educator. So uh, theater history is really important to me. History in general is really important to, um, I hope everybody, but definitely in the theater, um, a lot of our stuff is colored by what's going on in theater and in history. So when you think about musicals, often people think of one of two for me. Well, now it's changed, but you know, growing up, it was Rodgers and Hammerstein. So it's your parents sort of, or your grandparents, I guess now, um, what they would listen to. And it's all cutesy and it's all like, oh, today's great. And we're going to sing a song about being a, a farmer and a rancher and, or we're Cinderella and like, or Disney, Disney kind of changed a lot of stuff. Or it's, um, you know, Angela Weber. Angela Weber is, um, you know, famously kind of uh, become this like villainous person within the Sondheim community. Like fun fact, Stephen Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber share the same birthday. Um, So it's always like every single, you know, March 22nd when it's Stephen Sondheim's birthday, someone's always like, yeah, but it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I'm just like, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Stephen Sondheim are essentially foils for each other. Andrew Lloyd Webber is about spectacle and about kind of taking this small idea and really pushing it to the limit of what anyone will really kind of understand. And it's really about this bigness. And Stephen Sondheim musicals, not to say that they aren't big, because there are there is a grand nature of it, but 
when you whittle down to like what you remember about it, I doubt you're going to remember the set. I doubt you're going to remember the costumes. I think you're going to remember the content. And so for me, again, talking like defending musical theater, which I definitely think needs to be defended. Um, I often think that if you are not familiar with the genre or the the medium, not the genre, but the medium, I think it's very easy to feel like this is so different because it feels, it feels very deliberate, but also overly emotional. And I think the emotions and the, the, the way that, again, I think because he does have a limited musical ability, right? And that is something that he's talked about, right? He doesn't, he's not a piano player by trade. He's a songwriter by trade. Um, I think because of that, he often reuses things so that it just makes sense, right? Like if I buy a bunch of groceries, I can make one meal out of it, but what if I use the same ingredients to make a second and a third and a fourth, you know, it's really that innovation and, you know, when we talk about musical theater in 2020, we talk about Hamilton and Hamilton is full of that. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is, uh, you know, Sondheim stand himself and has often, you know, talked about how Stephen Sondheim has, you know, inspired him to be where he is. And we see that same use, um, in musical theater terms, we call it a motif, right? And they call it in, in film and, and there's other musical motifs, but he uses a lot of inverses to kind of trick the audience to be familiar with something, but it's almost presented as a new thing. Um, in particular, I think when you're looking musically at his stuff, I think Sweeney Todd is is kind of the juggernaut in that and he was kind of like right in the pocket of his experience. It was later in the 70s, but it's still before it was before he had a big kind of uh, failure. So he, I think he was embrazened and kind of like, yeah, let's do this thing. And and Sweeney Todd, um, whenever I show it to my students, because uh, Sondheim is definitely a part of my curriculum as a teacher, uh, the like the, just the first. 10 seconds of Sweeney Todd is this intense, overwhelming, like orchestra that just feels so big. It's, and it's to, to know that it's like, you know, the first horror type type of musical is just, you hear it and it's so big and, and, and frightening, but at the same time, there's so much humanity and so much humor. I, I think another thing being a humorous kid and being obsessed with comedy, Stephen Sondheim has so much funny work and clever stuff. And he's obsessed with words. And and I was very obsessed with words, you know, as a kid growing up, being influenced by, you know, people like Mel Brooks, for instance, which like all of his jokes are just verbal. They're, they're puns, they're these verbal things. And, and so the spoken word was very important to me. And it's kind of where even now when I, when I'm interacting with comedy, you know, as either as a performer or as a viewer, I'm often really paying attention to what people say. So for me, no one does it better than Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I'm a big fan of lyricists. So I'm a big fan of Lynn Monroe and and a big hip hop fan overall. Um, same. When it when it comes to Sweeney Todd, I actually watched a video a long time ago. I think it was by Sideways on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, he's great. He's great. I love yeah, his stuff. 
breaking down the use of the deus airy and how yeah like the for anybody that doesn't know the deus airy is this one musical piece i think it's like eight minutes long it was written a long time ago it's supposed to talk about the death of jesus christ but like there's a few notes in the beginning of it that sondheim basically took from took from that piece and placed into the overall theme for sweeney todd basically representing this character's connection to death and then also reusing it, flipping it upside down, reversing it, uh, Missy Elliott style, and <laughs> using it and doing it in a way to get across certain ideas that if you only have the music of if you only if you only had the music, no lyrics or and if you only had the music and the names of these tracks, you can tell what the story of Sweeney Todd was all the way up until the end. It's like okay, the this character's theme is similar to Sweeney's, so that means that and because of his connection to death, they're he's probably gonna one of them is gonna die, they're gonna end up killing each other. Uh, here's this character who has the same theme but but it's done differently. So they're probably gonna, they might stay alive, but they have some kind of relation to Sweeney overall. It's like that's what I'm talking about when it comes to the math that Sondheim kind of like introduced into these kind of shows, and how it kind of like blows my blows my mind. That, those are the things that I'm always looking for with the, for these kind of episodes because, like, being able to take something, the idea that some that some people out there can uh, absorb a piece of medium and then walk away from it forever and never think about it again <laughs> frightens me. I am not cap- I am not capable of that. Yeah. And so like the things that I'm looking for are always the things where oh yeah here's here's something that you wouldn't have noticed to only seeing it the first uh, first time but then doing the research and and jumping in on this 100% that's when you find all these really crazy details that are super surprising and and the Deus Airy is a thing that like music composers are super familiar with you hear it in a bunch of other shows that basically anytime a character is being confronted by death whether it's like Star Wars or the Lion King they use that form of music all the time and that's one of those things that really blows my mind when it comes to Steven Sondheim's work I think uh yeah definitely I I feel that way um you know my favorite of his major works and he's done I mean looking on a list right here just to keep myself honest you know because I forget things but we're looking at probably like 12 major works that he's done the music and the lyrics for my favorite one of all time is a a musical called Sunday in the Park with George. And it's what he won his Pulitzer for. And the whole, and I remember I saw this also as a freshman. So my freshman year, I was, I was lucky enough that um, I kind of got like overexposed to Stephen Sondheim. Um, my drama teacher was a big Sondheim person. In particular, she was obsessed with Bernadette Peters. Um, and she kind of looked like Bernadette Peters. She had like this very like kinky curly hair like her and, and had these little like, you know, so very like very Bernadette. I mean, who couldn't be? I, I have no idea. I've seen her live in concert. I sat, I sat front row at the Kravitz Center in West Palm Beach, and I front row center. And I was the young. We were the youngest people anywhere near us. Like all the old people had no idea why me and my friend were there, but we're just. I sobbed the entire time. Um, I got a chance to meet her. I have a picture with her, uh, but she's incredible. Like she's like I think she was in her sixties, and she was maybe the sexiest thing I've ever seen in person. Like she's just butter, right? Like <laughs> you talk about the jerk, but anyway, um, you know, so we got overexposed. We saw into the woods. I saw Sunday in the park with George also features her. And that year, our musical was, um, Stephen Sondheim's first musical. He ever did the music and lyrics for, which is a musical called a funny thing happened on the way to forum, which is maybe the f- funniest musical I've ever seen. Um, 
been a part of, I, I was, I run, um, as a freshman, I was the spotlight operator. And I remember my spotlight would kind of shake because I'd be laughing so hard <laughs> at some of the stuff, you know, and, and, the, and talk about wordplay. That musical is full of just kookiness. And so I got kind of this like oversaturation of Stephen Sondheim and Sunday in the Park with George is a very challenging work. Um, the 1980s, you know, for art was all about, let's try something new. You know, like in the 80s, a lot of people were feeling like we've done everything. Let's do something different. And I think Stephen Sondheim felt that as well. Um, and he kind of had to get kind of nudged to do this work. And so those of you that don't know, Sunday in the Park with George is, um, there's a famous uh, surrealist artist named George Surratt. And he did um, a painting that is called um, Sunday on the Island of, of Grand Girat. It's um, most famously kind of seen in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's the painting that um, Cameron sort of just starts staring at. And it is, if you look at the painting, it's a very, very famous painting. Um, if you think you don't know it, you probably look it up and you definitely know it. Um, but what he remarked is that no one is looking at each other. And so you kind of start thinking about like, that's weird. People are sharing this space and it's full of people, but no one's looking at each other. And, and what can that mean? And also, you know, and whose perspective is this? And so they kind of make the main character George, as in George Surratt. And it's this imagination of what happened, like kind of taking historical fiction in there, but really kind of taking off. And the musical is extremely odd. I mean, the first uh, act is takes place in the time, the 1800s, and it tells about like George Surratt kind of building the painting and what he was going through and all this kind of stuff. And then act two jumps 200 years in the, in the future and is George Surratt's great grandson, who's also an artist, and he's struggling with the idea of art and his possible heritage and who he came from and all of this stuff. And it's an entirely complex and difficult to process. It is unusual. It is abstract. And I remember sitting there freshman year and being like, okay, I don't understand everything. I don't. And I think I knew that as a, as a, as a 14, 15 year old, but I wanted to understand everything. And since then I'm telling every single time I listen to it or I listen to, um, you know, people perform it or I got a chance to see it at the Arch Center a couple of years back. I am given new goodies to take from it, whether it's even something as small as the phrasing of the actor who chooses to, you know, sing it in a certain way or say a certain line. Then I'm like, oh my God, is that what he's talking about? And, you know, as a artist in my 30s, I relate to this idea of, does my art matter? Do people in my life understand me as an artist? I mean, I, I come from a family of non-artists, like decidedly not. Um, my family doesn't, like, I don't want to say, they're supportive in the fact that they're like, yeah, you're an artist, you're a teacher, that's awesome, yeah, you do this thing. Like, they don't, they're not like, oh, you're wasting your life. But at the same time, they're not supportive in a way that, like, they come to my shows or they, you know, when I was in college, uh, my mom would always come to my last performance, <laughs> which I always thought was like, okay, like, you, you know. By now you should have gotten it right. Yeah, exactly, which is always like, 
nice, but also when you're an, uh, like an act, I'm, I know that you probably know this, your last show is a little bit more for the cast than for the audience <laughs> at that point, because as a cast, you were like, let's just get real loose with it. Um, so, <laughs> you know, but that's all to say that, like, I felt that way. I felt that way as an artist, like, I, and not only that, but you, as an artist, you make sacrifices, especially, you know, when your pursuit of your art means that some people are going to get ignored. And that is kind of the big theme that runs through that musical. And as I grow older every year, I understand it more. And I understand, you know, the complexities of wanting to care for people, but realizing that if you're not able to create your art, you're not you. And so therefore, what is worth it? You know, that really, that big sort of artist, you know, and that's such a big concept to take in a musical for two and a half hours to really contemplate, like, I'm not who I am if I'm not an artist, but me being an artist means that I'm unavailable to certain people that's such a profound thing, you know, that, that for every party I didn't get to go to because I was at rehearsal for every boy that, you know, was like, why can't, why do you have to go to rehearsal? Let's just hang out. You know, all of that felt echoed in this work that I keep coming back to. Um, just the other day, I think this week, even before you had asked me to record this, I think on Sunday, I think we talked after Sunday, but on Sunday, for whatever reason, I decided to listen to Sunny in the Park with George. How fitting. And I listened to the most recent um, Broadway production, which has, um, oh my God, why am I flaking out? Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh my God, my brain just left for a second. Yeah. And Jake Gyllenhaal, I don't know if you've listened to it or if anyone out there, if you have not listened to Jake Gyllenhaal sing, he I is. did see him. I did recently watch the 90th celebration of Sondheim and hearing him sing at the end of it was really cool. That is like such a small, intimate thing. That's beautiful. That whole thing is, ugh, I, I just, but like listening to him, you know, he, he is a singer. I don't know where, you know, he's an amazing actor, a hundred percent. I love his work, but to hear him recontextualize something that's meant to something for me for so long, I hear different things, you know, his, I think he's a better actor than the original person, um, Mandy Patinkin, who's, you know, a gem of a human being, but you know, is a musical theater actor. And so unfortunately, sometimes we take vocals over acting, you know? Um, and I think that that's another reason why people don't necessarily take musicals seriously because there's so much depth. And I think when you are, wanting a pretty sound sometimes you don't get everything um but to hear him as like a fantastic actor to use his voice in a way to portray the the emotion again it just i you you talk about how someone can just listen or watch something and just be like yeah that was a thing i'm never gonna go into that that goes against my mind i am like an analysis like you you mentioned sideways and i'm like yep I've watched that. You could talk about another YouTube anal- like like person that analysis like you know analyzes different things. I've probably watched them. I am thirsty. I am I'm like hunger. I have a hunger for more deeper analysis. And Steven Sondheim has such a depth that there's almost not a limit to how many things I can unpack in his work. 
it's almost impossible to right just because like he he does the thing he writes it he does the music and everything like that and the show happens but even then there are so many other people involved who can then interpret his work that after i mean a funny thing happened on the way to the forum is what 60 years old at this point came out in 1962 yeah yeah so so like by by now he wrote it and then hundreds and hundreds of people have been able to add to it take away from it and uh, change things around and but it's all still an interpretation of the original work and how and and no matter what there's always going to be someone who can see this thing that he did and see it as a different way and then it's like oh i never thought about it that way which is one of the really cool things about theater in general it's my favorite thing about theater i mean when you talk about like you know I just recently during this pandemic, um, I, I, re, I caught up with the Star Wars, like the new the new ones that came out with um, the beautiful man. What is his name? Oscar Isaac. One that kind of looks like a fish, but he's beautiful. What is his name? Kylo Oscar Ren. Isaac? No, oh, no, no, uh, no, no. Uh, Oscar Isaac's my form of beauty. No. Oh, no. Beautiful. Oscar. I watched, uh, we watched uh, Ex Machina and I was like, this man is too good looking. I was, <laughs> that was, that was over. That's a whole nother topic. But um, what's his name? Kylo Ren. Adam Driver. Oh yeah, my Adam God. Driver. Jesus. We are we are officially the worst. But you know, whatever. This, this is not the Star Wars episode. No, 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 no. But <laughs> it's interesting that you know you talk about theater and you talk about how like oh my God, someone can watch a work from sixty years ago and and see something different and change something. And I thought about that a lot. You know, I'm a theater person, so for me, the text is holy, if that makes sense. But the execution is a is subjective, right? There isn't an objective way to interpret something. As theater, we are taught the exact opposite. We are taught to support the text, make sure that you, you know, you, you aren't, you know, uh, contradicting it. But at the same time, like there are multitude of ways to interpret something. And that came up to me when I'm, and again, I'm not a Star Wars stan, like don't come for me. Um, I watched the original, you know, three as a kid because my parents grew up in the seventies and they're like, these are important movies to watch. And I was like, cool. We had them on laser disc because that's how old I am. Um, but I, I loved them, you know, and I, and I watched them late and I know there was so much backlash and it's like, Every other medium seems to be obsessed with like, this is has to be the right way. This is the right way to do something. If something isn't perfect, throw everything out and don't even appreciate what's there. And sure, you would do it differently, but it's not you. And I don't, you know, and, and it came up, it comes up to me when I think of theater, because I think of theater wants difference. You know, it, it, it craves that there isn't one person who reigns supreme that it's all about interpretation from the act and that's what we are as actors right um actors are i'm not this person um and i'm trying to interpret it the way i i see it you know that idea of to get like super actory the idea of subtext right it's like it's i always talk about how it's not about what i say but it's how i say i can say good morning in seven different ways and i have a different effect that's theater for me and it goes back to this idea of providing something that is everlasting and something that is, you know, 
ripe with opportunities for you to get something different. I think the beautiful thing about Stephen Sondheim is I can talk to a bunch of people that love Stephen Sondheim and they, they, they kind of point to different things. And yeah, there's overall characters that are kind of, you know, pointed out. But when I, I it was so funny, I was, I think I posted something about uh, Sunday in the Park with George and another theater person was like, I know it's really controversial, but I love this show. And it's like, it's not controversial to me. It's my favorite show, but it is kind of looked at in that way. Um, and going back to the amazingness of him, there's so much subject matter. It's so vast. I mean, you're talking about, you know, we talked about forum, which is those of us in the know. We don't, we don't say the full name we say, say forum, <laughs> you know, it's about a, uh, it takes, it's, you know, a Roman comedy brought to life, you know, so it takes place about a, a Roman slave who's trying to, you know, figure out a yuck, yuck way to get freed. Right. Um, you have something like company, which was written in 1970 and it's all about marriage and it's, um, kind of looks at like, what does it mean to be a part of something? What does it mean to be in a couple? Is marriage for everyone? And in 1970, I mean, you're talking about right after the civil rights, you know, movement, you're talking about right before we get into women's lib, right? This idea of like, we're really addressing what does it mean to be in a marriage? And and beyond that, for me, it means like gender roles, you know? And it's like in 1970, he's taking on this idea. And then you get something completely different the next year in a musical called Follies, which is about a bunch of old actors going back to their theater that's about to get torn down and you get to see their past and like how they've interacted and intertwine. Um, you get, and then, you know, in 1976, you get uh, Pacific Overtures, which is a folk uh, kabuki musical that he did in full kabuki style and everyone was like, what the fuck? I mean, oh, I have I... heard of that one being a lot of people's favorites. And yes, you can curse as much okay, as you I was about, I was about to be like, oh, I don't know if I can. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think it's, I think, it, I think that a lot of people appreciate it because it's such a big stand, but like nowadays we wouldn't um, do that. Can you imagine just like <laughs> trying to introduce culture to people? I mean, it's just so much, you know, and, and if you watch the Sondheim, um, uh, birthday concert that they did, um, you know, they tried and, and it was, that's a whole nother like, you know, craziness. Cause they, it was the first one of its kind, but you get to see, they have, um, they have a song from Pacific Overtures, you know, which is all about, it takes place in Japan. It's Kabuki, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't know that in 1976, they had enough, I shouldn't say enough. They didn't They didn't care. look for enough Japanese actors exactly. to actually do that part. You know, yeah. so to watch, three Asian American actors being able to, you know, sing that for me in 2020 was, you know, that's, that's a moment, you know, because granted he was introducing this, this culture to people that didn't know it, but you know, it's still in Japan and in 76, I mean, we're talking about what three, 30 years before people are in world war two and Japan is the enemy. And you, you know, and again, we when I come back to theater is theater pushes the envelope way before anyone else seems to, you know, and maybe it's cause it's a limited experience. Um, you know, and, and York is a little bit more progressive. I don't know if that's true, but you know, I, I think there is this idea that theater is able to take on subjects before the rest of art seems ready to, you know, before we're going to have a TV show, before we're going to have a movie, you know, often it's going to happen in theater first, or at least it used to. Now, I don't know that, you know, I mean, theater 
<laughs> theater is is yeah. suffering. But, you know, and then right after Pacific Overtures, you have Sweeney Todd. And it's like, what? You know, it's just... Yeah, I think a lot of the goal of theater wasn't necessarily to hit like those four quadrants. They're not looking for no. trying to impress as, as wide an audience as possible. It always it kind of usually starts with maybe one person with a really weird idea, and then they find someone who latches onto it, and they just make a thing out of it, and then it can have accidental success. And and but usually it is it is pretty much an accident. I don't know. If, I don't know. If there's a formula to actually get theater right. It's so funny because. You know, uh, this is going to get political, but theater's political. Being alive is political. But, you know, the 80s really becomes like borderline, like this really like segmented way of looking at all entertainment. And it really becomes about this capitalistic way of making money and you know when we look at you know i mean this is not a this is not a podcast about capitalism but you know when we that decide one will come later probably yeah right um when we decide that it what matters is how much money something is making we limit what how far we can go you know and you talk about for quadrant um that theater doesn't really, I mean, it starts again, Angela Weber. It, and again, why are we foils? You know, Stephen Sondheim's making this beautiful musical about like artistry and what you have to sacrifice and how people won't get you and how you need to persevere because what you leave behind or how you affect people is so important. And then you have this man making a musical about cats or <laughs> people pretending to be trains on roller skates like uh, this is this is not you know or the biggest thing about fan of the opera is that there's a giant chandelier that comes in for no reason because it adds nothing to the story so you know for me when when i sit here and and, and you know i talk about Ingrid weber which you know is a whole thing it's because it's the antithesis of this person that i value so much and how you know the biggest spectacle that he's had is incomparable to the idea of these other huge juggernauts that seem to be all about how can I, you know, how can I astonish the audience? And I think, you know, you talk about, is there a way to, you know, have a perfect musical? No. And in fact, every single time they try to develop something that they're like, this is going to work. No, no questions. You get Spider-Man, turn it off in the dark (laughs) and things are like deadly. you know, or you look at all of the failed musicals. I mean, we can talk, Broadway is now obsessed with two things and it's all, it's all centered around money. It's let's give them a movie they've already heard and make it a musical. So that's why you get things like Elf, the musical, A Christmas Story, the musical, Pretty Woman, Tootsie. These are all musicals that have come out in the last five, like five to 10 years. I have heard Um, Rocky, the musical is pretty amazing. I mean, I'm not to say that it's not amazing, right? And again, uh, you know, that gets to the bigger thing. But I think that audience that comes in, you're you're either fighting against the theater community that is, you know, have grown up with the theater world has grown up with works from, you know, Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams and Stephen Sondheim. And then you're like, now I'm going to go watch Rocky the Musical. It's not (laughs) that it can't be entertaining or it can't be great, but I think 
I don't know that we're serving the medium as much. Or you get jukebox musicals, right? You get Mamma Mia, you get, which, which is like the biggest musical film of all time. You get, uh, you know, you get the, the Temptations just had a musical out. Cher just had a musical. And it's all about their, you know, Jersey Boys, old people love that shit. Um, again, not to say I don't enjoy it. I, I enjoy all musical theater, mm, almost all <laughs> musical theater. I, I'm like, let me not say that. I enjoy a lot of it and I, and I can see the, what it does, but it's, it's different, you know? Um, talking in today, you know, this whole Hamilton debate coming in 2020, um, something I wrote, you know, on my social media, because I'm such a conversation starter, not, um, I wrote like a thing is like, okay, all of you guys that are complaining about Hamilton and the negative effects it could have about representing history, please don't go watch Assassins, which is a musical that is written from the perspective of people who have either successfully or attempted to assassinate presidents. And it is beautiful and I, and, and is, you know, it's so great. And it's, it's got complex ideas because I think, I think we're living in an age where we are so upset about the things that aren't right, that we don't focus on what is or what is challenging or the idea that art is not meant to be perfect. You know, um, you think, and that's something that happens on Sunday, but like you think about, you know, Vincent van Gogh, we, we are like, Oh my God, this beautiful thing. He died alone and poor. No one gave a fuck about him. And yet every, you know, child I show Starry Night to is like, oh yeah, I've seen that painting before. You know, I think we're, com- we're, we're confusing the difference between art as a means to inspire, as a means to start a conversation and taking it as this is, everything needs to be perfect. And I think it, like what you talked about, that four quadrant sort of goal is damaging to art in a certain way. You know, it's where do we stop? At what point do you decide like, if this isn't perfect, then we shouldn't move forward. It's like for me as a musical theater lover and, and defender, I can point to a million different ways that Hamilton is effective in what it does. But if you're so focused on the idea that these people are wrong for X, Y, and Z, even though they're rational, even though they are truth, it's like you're missing the point as to what this story was supposed to say. And and that's where I start to defend the text, right? I talked about how the text is holy in theater. It's like, I understand what you see, but the text says this. And that's always my go-to for it. It's like, well, you look at the text and you look at what is this trying to do? And not what you want it to do, but what the text is actually doing is something that's different. Um, and that's sort of, you know, a big thing for, yeah, I'm, for a big, I'm a big fan of uh death of the author and the the text the text can be there but it's always open to interpretation after the fact Preach. i mean that's so that's so difficult right like i teach theater and it's like that's a big that's a big conversation right and and you know steven sondheim is is a a gay jewish man who grew up you know we talked about it he was born in 1930 so he's grown up through some shit he has a limited perspective right But so for me, as a Hispanic woman living in 2020, I could choose to go back and be like, oh, well, you know, he kind of slut shames and company. And then there's like, definitely it's there. I'm not saying it's not, but is that... 
I'm sure he'd be the first person to tell you. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but also, you know, and and that's difficult. I think that's a difficult thing when we talk about the the pioneers or not even pioneers, but I think when we talk about like the the heavyweights, right? I listen to a lot of, I don't know if you listen to the rewatchables, right? Um, It's a podcast where they go over movies that are, were watchable and they always talk about like Mount Rushmore of whatever. So they'll be like the Mount Rushmore of action movies, you know, and everyone's like, well, Die Hard has to be there. You know, when you think about like the Mount Rushmore of theater, it's made up of white men, but you know, and that, and that's, and that's difficult to deal with in 2020. And I think that it's a conversation to have, but it doesn't take away from the, the, the impact that something like death of a salesman has had. Is it written from a white man's perspective? Absolutely. Are there issues that we could go into and say, yeah, absolutely. But again, theater allows you to look at it and recontextualize what's going on. So yes, there is issues, but you as a director and as an as an actor and as a creative person, as a lighting designer, as a costume designer, even, um, you know, I've seen political statements made by everybody. You know, that's the beautiful thing about, I put you in a certain costume, I'm making a statement. You know, theater allows, I think there's room in theater to make a comment about something without taking away from like what, again, what that idea and, and death of an author is, is a huge thing. I think we're all having to face, you know, with this whole, this bullshit with JK rule, like, you know, like this bitch just, <laughs> you know, there's like millions of people that are like, please don't do this. Like just pretend to not. Just stop, like, nah. just stop, just stop, just stop. He's like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I, I saw on my, on my Facebook that someone just found out about Woody Allen and his shit. And Aww. I'm like, where the fuck have you been? But okay. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Yeah. It's rough. I like some of his movies too. That's rough, you know? And, and as I think the important thing, I guess, I guess my perspective on all of that, like the idea of death of an author or all that kind of stuff, I'm lucky that Steven Sondheim doesn't really have too much pro- problematic shit, which, you know, can be accounted to him being a good person. Or also, like I said, he's a collaborator. So maybe there were people in the room that was like, hey, you know, X, Y, and Z. But how I, I grapple with it is I look at the work and then I have the conversation about the person who made the work. But I think it's very difficult. It's always been a challenge for me because I've never seen artists as role models them themselves, but their work as inspirational. Um, I, uh, you know, when I graduated from acting school, um, we had to do a one person show on someone that uh, really existed because it was a research thing. And I did Amy Winehouse and um, I made it a musical and I wrote it and I starred in it and this whole thing, right? It's a whole idea. But I think even looking at someone like her, it's like you people are like, oh, she's such a bad role model. It's like, I don't care if she's a bad role model. I'm into the, she's an artist and she's a musician and her music is insane. You know, you look back to the 1970s and the 60s and you're looking at Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and, and uh, what's his name from the doors, you know, Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison. You know, like those dudes were like probably not great people. And like, I don't know, you know, but it, then it's also like you learn and you get, older and, and, you know, or you look at these people that are athletes and it's like, they say one thing out of turn and people are like this, they should be fired. And it's like, it's such a difficult thing because you ask that question of, can you separate the artist from the art? And I, and I, 
maybe by necessity say yes i have to i can't throw away all of this beautiful work because stanley kubrick is a piece of shit which he <laughs> is but like fuck man this shining is so good you know like it, it like you know it it's 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 difficult it, yeah. it becomes more challenging you know all right. I, well, I think that's a beautiful thing to kind of end things. I don't know how we could top all that. Mm. Uh, we went talking, Steve, talking about Stephen Sondheim and then went into Kill Your Heroes. I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, or have good heroes like Stephen Sondheim <laughs> and you don't need to kill them. No one needs to kill him. He's beautiful. <laughs> Alright. Uh, Chachi, if someone wants to hear more from you or follow you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, cool. So I'm not a I'm not a public person because I, I, I'm an educator and people or things, but I do uh, perform with Villain Theater. Um, I would I would ask you to check that out, um, villaintheater.com, or you can look us up on YouTube. I have been doing a lot of crazy new stuff um, via our YouTube page, so you can go to youtube.com backslash villaintheater, theater E-R. Maybe in the future I could talk about the difference between R-E and E-R theater, but that would be another conversation. Whole um, nother podcast. Whole nother podcast. <laughs> Any theater-related stuff, you can hit me up, and I'll come back in to yell about theater for an hour. All right, well, yeah, Villain Theater, highly recommended for me, folks. Come check it out. They have all their shows on YouTube during all these uh, horrible, horrible times. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Chachi. I think this was great. This was an utter success, in my opinion. Uh, I had so again, much everybody. fun. I had so much fun. Thank you, everyone. Go look up Steven Sondheim, and uh, I hope you like it. All right. My God, folks, this one is going down in the history books. This is one of my favorite shows that I've recorded so far. Uh, Chachi was a more than excellent guest. This is exactly the kind of episode that I want to do. This is about bringing on people who are passionate and knowledgeable about the things that they love and can talk about it in a way that is interesting. If you think you can do this too, feel free to go to InMyDefensePodcast at gmail.com. Send an email requesting to be on. There's going to be a form out soon that people can fill up. I promise you. I want to make this as easy as possible for other people to jump on the podcast. I want to hear your voices. Uh, thanks again for Chachi. She is a terrific guest. Uh, for sure, I'll have her back on if ever I want to talk theater again. Um, folks, if you like this episode, which I, I can't imagine you didn't, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Uh, help other people find the show. Uh, you can also reach You can also find the show on Stitcher. You can find the show on Spotify. Uh, whatever podcatcher you happen to be using, uh, drop us some feedback. Let me know how I'm doing. Is the show terrible? Is this the first time we actually had a good one? Let me know, guys. I think I've been doing okay so far, but I need the vindication. I want to show that I'm doing okay. And and honestly, if you give me feedback on how I can do better, I want to do better. Uh, just some other little upkeep that i want to remind you guys on our logo was created by uh, gizmo figueroa you can find his info at guille g-u-i-l-l-e figueroa.com if you want to have him do some work for you he's really awesome the music you heard on this episode was made by kevin mcleod at incompetech.io 
Uh, check out that website. There's a link in the show notes as well. This has been the In My Defense podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.